OSL is the leading distributor of radiotherapy patient positioning equipment and physics QA products for the UK and Ireland, supplying both the NHS and private sectors. We currently have a busy event schedule and will be attending many conferences in the next few months and many of the regional study days. For a full list of where to meet us, please do get in touch. As well as our event schedule, we also have a busy product portfolio that has recently been updated to. This includes Sky Factory for state-of-the-art visual LED lighting. We have MyQA Ion and Ion RT from IBA for automated patient-specific QA for photon, electron and proton radiotherapy. And we also have MR Box from our AI suppliers at Therapanacea, allowing AI-powered MR-only workflows for a more consistent and high-quality planning pathway. For SGRT, we have a vast range of open-faced thermoplastic masks, as well as surface-guided compatible clear bolus from ClearSight, preventing any risk of interference between the skin surface and your SGRT solution. And as always, do not hesitate to get in touch to discuss your product and service requirements with our friendly and knowledgeable team. Our account and clinical specialists are from a radiotherapy and physics background, and we are more than happy to chat about the clinical benefits and the workflow of all of our products. Hello everyone and welcome to Rat Chat, multi-award winning therapeutic radio fellow oncology podcast. My name is Namandral Kamsen and I'm joined by my fellow host Joe McNamara. Good morning everyone. So we're at UKIO in 2023 and we have a wonderful guest who has a great career to discuss with us. Would you like to introduce yourself please? Uh, yeah, I'm Nick Spencer and I've been a radiologist based in Yorkshire for 25 plus years. But I've had a bit of a, a checkered past if you like <laughs> with a, a, a range of roles uh, in in industry in a way, there's a radiologist supporting businesses delivering imaging in the community uh, and, and more recently now, uh, in addition to my clinical practice, I work for Agfa Healthcare, who are a provider of PACs uh, and artificial intelligence solutions um, uh, all around the world. So it's a global brand. Uh, I've got the opportunity to work across Northern Europe as their chief clinical information officer. Um, bringing a very different perspective because I'm not selling stuff, yeah. I'm providing expertise and advice and guidance. I'm getting a little bit of interaction with product development. Uh, whenever I meet customers, I seem to have a little bit of fun with them. They're quite surprised that I'll give an opinion yeah. about some, somebody else's place or somebody else's service or do you get the opportunity then to almost disseminate best practice because you have that ability to go into lots of different services? I, I, I wouldn't be so bold as to say disseminate best practice. I, I've got a perception of what's gone on in a wide variety of healthcare settings, both in the UK and elsewhere in the world. And in the last couple of years, when I've travelled more to continental or global conferences, I, I'm getting a different perspective. Um, uh, but I, but it, though it's different than what I've done before, I still very much um, uh, feel very lucky to have my clinical practice to go back to. And I think that transition where I'm doing more away from the, 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 the clinical environment is, is, is a testing one to work through, because I, I do miss that. But equally, I probably enjoy it more when I'm in the clinical sphere. Can I take you all the way back since uh, before I was born? <laughs> oh, <laughs> no, age, thank you. That's all right. What made you want to be in healthcare? So, so I've got a, 
strange background. And um, when I was a little boy in the 60s, my parents emigrated to Canada. Uh, my dad was a community surgeon. Uh, in a, he took a job in a small community in, in northern Ontario. Um, and so I grew up there and did my primary school there. But then I came back to school in the UK. My grandparents were in the UK. My parents' families were in the UK. And I suspect that they thought they would probably come back to the UK eventually. But they never did. Um, so I grew up as the oldest of four. Uh, my dad worked incredibly hard, was on, on call and operating, um, and they didn't see a great deal of them. Um, but I do know that from a very early age I decided I wanted to be a doctor. Now that's not atypical in the 70s. Uh, parents who are medics wanted to do that. But the opportunity as a medical student doing an elective, I was doing elective in Canada, um, at a big university in southern Ontario, but before I went, I did a couple of weeks with my dad. And by that stage, I'd already got interested in imaging. So my elective, which was originally going to be gastroenterology, ended up being GI radiology and gastroenterology. So we're still possibly back around the time you were born in the <laughs> mid-80s, uh, possibly before you were born. Um, and, and so I was a medical student and uh, doing uh, studies on barium enemas, uh, ultimately a paper that got published in clinical radiology. Amazing. Mm. So what does your day as a clinical radiologist look like? Um, I, I guess, in the, so I work in a, a, a big, it's now, it's just been, it's just become a teaching trust, Mid Yorkshire Teaching Trust, which is a three-site trust, Wakefield, Pontefract and Dewsbury. And I say Wakefield first, just because it's the centre of it geographically, it's got the biggest size. Yeah. Um, so we've got a department that's doing 600,000 exams a year, 40 radiologists, one or two of the old boys, of which I'm one, that are prepared to look at anything. Yeah. So I get, when I'm at work, I get asked to advise and stuff. I get given the tricky stuff that nobody wants to do. You're brave <laughs> here, so my, my <laughs> colleagues are listening to listening to this. They'll they'll think who does he think he is? Um, but really now, my life is focused down on um, on head and neck radiology, uh, the diagnostic phase of patients with cancer, cancer pathways. I probably do. At least, uh, on a, from there for a full week, 10 head and neck biopsies a week. Um, and those patients are in a vulnerable stage. If you're going to biopsy them, um, they know that there's something serious going on. Yeah. And the clinicians will always hedge their bets a bit in terms, of, in terms of what they think is going on at that phase. Because you're about to take a biopsy sample, I often end up having really interesting and challenging conversations. You know, it's cancer doc, isn't it? That kind of stuff. And, and I, I think the thing I say the most commonly is look at yourself. You walk into the room as a fit and well patient with a neck wound, you walk out just the same. Yeah. And what we're doing is taking, beginning a journey to work out what we need to do to help make you better. And as someone who has had cancer, um, having that biopsy was probably one of the hardest areas um, for me in my cancer pathway. Um, I really struggled with that biopsy element. Because it's not it's not an easy procedure, is it? Especially of head and neck region. Well, the head and neck region, because you're right in people's personal space. Um, it, again, thinking about potential lay audience listening to this, um, your radiologist or whoever's the operator doing it, because we've got we've radiologists doing um, head and neck biopsies as well now, they need to put you at your ease. Um, yeah. um, and part of that is a confidence. Part of it is an openness and an honesty. Um, I've always found that having a, a, a very straightforward style in my patients, um, I'll often distract them, talk about things that are not work related, ask yeah. them what they're doing the next day, or, or, 
the weather's good or is it test match nearby or uh, I, I need to a little bit occasionally about my family uh, just as a way of, of distracting them and there's only about a 10 second period when you're actually doing anything that really just all the other stuff is just scanning and prep I was a great patient I passed out so <laughs> <laughs> I was very amenable <laughs> Just thinking, obviously, from the patient rapport side of things. So now, as a someone who has a very distinguished career, how do you give that information, that experience, to junior trainees? I think that's quite challenging because everybody now is um, uh, trainees uh, of, of all sorts. They're, they're probably better educated, uh, probably on average more empathic, um, but they aren't able to. to broadly take risks, so I would have a conversation that might be seen to be risky. Um, if, I, if I see a neck club that I don't think is anything sinister, I, t I tell the patient to leave the room and not worry, and I, but I tell them it's me that needs to be worried, in case I'm wrong, yeah. which would be really bad for both of us. Um, and and so, so I try and take it, so with reassurance, and that's just as important as patients who I see a lump and I think it's something sinister, we'll have that conversation if the patient wants it, so you've got to judge each situation. And if, if the patient is, is, is shutting down, you've got to be very cautious. I've only two or three times in the last decade where you've continued to be open, and the patient gets very upset then, and then don't want to go yeah. there. And I had one patient complain where she felt that I was um, far too over-threatened. Yeah. She felt that threatened, and I, and I reflected extensively on that afterwards. Um, and, and, and kept a much closer eye on the rest of that patient's journey because I was very anxious that I hadn't done the right thing. But again, that's part of that learning. So, to, coming back to your question, with regards to uh, juniors and, and, and trainees, I try and let them see me working. Uh, if they're if they're somebody who's doing a biopsy and I'm supervising them at the stage where I'm still in the room supervising them, I will make sure that I'm doing some of the patient's engagements as well, but give them the opportunity to. Um, and I've got a couple of new consultant colleagues who, again now, have been um, worked alongside me as trainees. And, and I like to think that some of my style and some of my approach um, has, has been built into their practice. So, within kind of your field now, what do you think are the opportunities for radiographers, radiologists? I think we're at a major, major crossroads because we just can't work out how far AI is going to go and yeah. how quickly. Um, I think that within five years, artificial intelligence will be reporting on normal x-rays. Yeah. And we will, be, we will be deploying risk reports that say, this has been reviewed by AI, studies normal, asking the I think we'll leave it so that the clinician can ask us to yeah. look at it again if it doesn't fit or if there's another facet to uh, patient's care that I've got, actually it's not just this x-ray I want you to look at, it's this whole suite of imaging. Um, I think, that, and that will take away quite a lot of reporting that now is done by radiographers. I think that's a little bit of a threat. I think people are quite anxious about that. Um, I think AI will make us better. It will make us quicker and more efficient. And that will give other opportunities. In the UK, where there's such a shortage in the diagnostic workforce, it may give us some headroom that enables us to deliver a better quality service. And it's really interesting in UK diagnostics because we have the six-week standard that most of us are meeting most of the time. So, it's, But that's an acquisition standard. We need to gradually turn that into a 
reported and published and communicated with both the patient and the referrer yeah. inside six weeks for routine. Obviously, everything is going to get, can go faster. And I think that's the next side of where we're going to need to go. Patient reporters communicating results to patients includes copy clinic letters and the style that clinicians write to, the, so they're writing to patients and copying their yeah. primary care practitioners, and I think that's great. We can't dumb down radiology reports. Hang on a second, yeah. AI's going to do that for us. Publish this report in a style that can be read by a layperson. Chat GPT version 5 will do that in five seconds. So but then the patient gets a copy that says, this is an AI adapted copy of your report. Um, if you've got a question, please ask your clinician about it. And your clinician may ask a radiologist or radiographer to talk to you about it. So I can see those things being consumed. And this is something I've always thought about. I can kind of see that future, but I can't quite see how to get there. Yeah. So yeah. part of being a senior person is, is being prepared to give out that view, and then collectively we'll all move in that direction. So I think, I think that's what's most exciting now. I do think there's a risk in there. If there's one top tip you could give any of our listeners right now about anything, what would you say? <laughs> My, my natural instinct would be to want to give a top tip to, to patients um, because that's what we do all this for. And I think that uh, it's really important that we communicate well with patients, but that patients are able to absorb what we've got to say. Um, if you're at a difficult or vulnerable time, I think it will always be have a family member with you that can, that can, can help two sets of ears listening to what clinicians have got to say. Um, and engage in tech. So again, I'm very worried about these patient portals not being able to be accessed by the people that need them the most. So we know everybody, almost everybody on the streets has a smartphone now, so it's possible. So there's an embracing tech and there's a finding ways of making sure that, that you're able to hear everything, listen to and, and process what clinicians have got to say. Clinicians have got responsibility to make sure that's what happens. What are you most excited about for the future of your career? Don't say retiring. <laughs> no, not at all. So this, I'm in a transition at the moment. So this role at Attack for Healthcare is is very different. Um, I have always loved travelling, and I'm definitely travelling more. So that's a that's just a personal win. Yeah. Um, I am seeing clinicians and a little bit of patients in the healthcare sector, in the healthcare systems. So this year I've been in Scandinavia, I've been in uh, Holland and Belgium and Ireland uh, and, and all of those things give me a different perspective. Um, I was astonished when I was in um, as, as Sweden three weeks ago to find that they still had a risk-driven reporting. Um, so everything I do is inside packs. That's not because I work for Agfriendly, but that's, yeah. how, that's how it, that, that curates the works so that I did all the right things in the right priority. And this institution is still using the Report. It's really surprised me. So that I'm getting perspectives. So the excitement for the future is that I've got a, a, a slightly slower pace, um, uh, where my influence is softer, but definitely possibly having more impact. But I think what I'm going to miss is the patient contact. And that's definitely going to be a change that's coming soon. Okay, well, thank you very All much. All right. Yeah, thank you very so much for joining us. Does that sound like a fucking arrogant